All right, we are in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the last chapter of 2 Timothy. A lot of scholars believe that this is the last chapter or the last words, really, written words of the Apostle Paul. That this is his last book, that it dates after Titus, many people believe, and this would make these Paul's last recorded words. And I kind of like to remember and flesh out like, what was going on when Paul was writing this? So remember, Paul's in prison in Rome, and it's not a pleasant place. It's cold, and it's dark, and it's lonely. In fact, we'll see in this chapter that Paul is, is cold. He's scared about winter coming, and a lot of people has deserted him. He's alone. And he's in Rome, and Nero is on the throne. And Nero is not a very good dude. In fact, this, most scholars believe, is right around the time of the great Roman fire where Nero actually lit the city of Rome on fire and then blamed it on the Christians. He was crazy, killing Christians right and left. The only reason Paul's not already dead is because he's a Roman citizen and he's therefore guaranteed a trial and he's awaiting that trial. And what about Rome itself? I mean, was it a moral culture? Oh man, this is the height of the depravity of the Roman Empire with the debauchery and sexual deviancy and the coliseums and the games, it's crazy. And so I think about this and I think personal situation, really, really bad. Political situation, really, really bad. Cultural moral situation, really, really bad. Kingdom of God, growing. Kingdom of God's growing. And I gotta remember that sometimes. Cause I think like I've got to get my, if I could figure out my personal situation, then I could participate in the kingdom of God growing. Or if we could just get this political mess figured out, then we could see the kingdom of God grow. Or if we could just fix the moral fabric of our society, then the kingdom of God would grow. And those are all good things to work on, but the kingdom of God can grow in those situations, in spite of those situations, and oftentimes because of those situations. And the kingdom of God is growing right now in Grants Pass. I believe it. The 175 middle schoolers downstairs, the next generation, it's the kingdom of God growing and God is working. And it's so encouraging to me. So that's what we see here. That's the situation as we jump in to Paul's last words to Timothy. I think you could take this chapter and really break it into two separate chunks. You could take verses one through eight. This is Paul's final charge to Timothy. And this is verses nine through 22. We've got a few personal requests, some updates on Paul's current situation and some warnings about a few people, okay? It's kind of like family business. So we're gonna spend most of our time in verses one through eight. We're gonna touch a few things in nine through 22. If I could take one word and describe Paul's final words to Timothy in verses one through eight, it would be this, keep. Over and over and over again, Paul is going to emphasize something to Timothy and it's going to fit in with this idea of keep. Okay, the first thing that Paul has to tell Timothy that Paul would have to tell us is this, keep your eyes on the bigger picture. It's verse one, here's what he says. I charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing 
and his kingdom. First of all, Paul says, listen, keep your eye on the bigger picture. There is a lot of stuff going on here, Paul says. The kingdom of God is growing. Jesus Christ is going to return and he's going to judge. We talked about that on Sunday, right? God's coming back and he's going to judge. There's one more thing in here that I think is so key to this whole passage and it's this. He says, I charge you in the presence of God. If you read Paul's letters, he is constantly reminding his readers that God is present because it is so, so, so important for us to remember. Grab your Bibles and turn to Psalm 46. I wanna look at something real quick. I've never been a big Psalms guy. I gotta admit, it's, I'm more of a Romans guy, right? I'm more of a, like a doctrine Romans guy. But I notice something as I read Paul's writings. He quotes Psalms a lot. Paul quotes Psalms a lot because there's really, really valuable, theological, deep truths in this. Here's Psalm 46. Most of us are familiar with it. But Psalm 46 starts out and it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Psalm starts out and says, listen, we don't have to be afraid because God is present. And here's what he's gonna go on to say. He's gonna say, we don't have to be scared of natural disasters. God is on the throne still. We, don't have to, we do not even have to be scared of war and pestilence and things that are happening between nations. Look at it. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives away, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Natural disasters. God is on the throne. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning's dawn. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob, our fortress. He starts out, he says, God is present. Don't worry about natural disasters. God's on the throne. Don't worry about political chaos. God's with us. Then he goes on to say, God's not just with us, he's working. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Probably the most quoted Psalm on being calm, being at peace, being okay with crazy circumstances. We all know that verse. It's written on something in almost every one of our houses, right? Be still and know that he is God. The Psalm that that verse centers around starts out with, remember God is present. In the middle, it reminds us again, hey, God is present. And at the end, it says, hey, God's present. God's with us because we need that reminder. I need that reminder just like the Psalmist at the beginning of my day, in the middle of my day, At the end of my day, God is present. God is with us. God is present. And sometimes I have to remind myself. I do. Oftentimes I do it by looking for things to be thankful for. Just kind of working throughout my day and being like, oh, thank you, Lord. That's right, you are present. That's right, you are working. Because I can just lose sight of that, right? 
It's so, so important. Because as we go through the rest of this chapter, there's going to be a whole bunch of things that Paul tells Timothy, hey, do this, do this, pay attention to that, watch out for this, make sure you're doing this. It's really a list of do's and don'ts. And I'm always scared of a list of do's and don'ts because it's like personal self-help, which doesn't work. Because none of the rest of this chapter works unless you get this at the beginning, God is present. God is present with you. He will help you, Timothy. He will help you, Edgewater person. He will help me, James, to walk these things out because he's present. And so Paul would tell us, keep our eyes on the bigger picture. That's the very first thing we have to do. We must keep our eyes on the bigger picture. The next thing we have to do is verses two and three. It's keep preaching the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season. We're back in Timothy now, if you guys didn't know. Okay, all right, okay, perfect. Everyone's with me. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myth. Timothy, Edgewater, keep preaching the word. We talked quite a bit about this on Sunday. And if you're going to preach the word, and if you're going to use it to reprove, rebuke, or exhort, and remember our definition, reprove is to expose what is false. If I'm going to use the Bible to expose what is false in someone's life, and it's really good for that, or to rebuke, to spur to strongly oppose a current action. If I'm gonna use biblical principles to tell someone why I'm strongly opposing their current action, or if I wanna exhort to point in an appropriate direction, I have to do it with complete patience and teaching, or to say it another way, with understanding and long-suffering. We have to walk that out, or those with itching ears won't listen to us. That's what we talked about on Sunday. Keep your eye on the bigger picture. Keep preaching the word. And then verse four, Paul tells Timothy, Paul would tell us, keep yourself walking rightly. It's actually verse five. Keep yourself walking rightly. He says this, as for you, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So February of last year, I actually got to go on a missions trip to Uganda with uh, Matt Heverly and Chris Martinez and Jason Folkstad and a couple other pastors from church. And it was, it was an amazing time. And one of the things that they like to do is have question and answer sessions. So we're sitting in a church in Uganda and we're having this question and answer session. And um, I happen to have the mic at the moment. And then Jason is passing around the mic because he's a sucker like that. And he knew he wouldn't have to ask, answer any questions if he's handing the mic to people. So he hands the mic to this lady and she stands up and she says, she says, in my country, men beat their women. And they beat their women because they say they love them. And my husband beats me. And I do not want him to beat me, but he says he beats me because he loves me. So what should I do? And I'm like, Heverly? (laughs) You wanna take this one? (laughs) And I will never forget it, because Matt, the first thing he said was, the only person you can control is you. 
He says, the only person you can control is you. And then he went on to give a beautiful answer that I cannot remember. Um, And it's not like I'd never heard that before, but maybe it was the gravity of the situation. Maybe it was just, but it just struck me so profound because it's so unbelievably true. The only person I can control is me. I can't control anybody else. That's what Paul says right here. He says, hey, the world's gonna have itching ears. It's gonna get crazy. But Timothy, as for you, as for you, always be number one, sober-minded. First thing, Timothy, be sober-minded. Sober-minded means this. We do not allow ourselves to be captivated by any type of influence that would lead us away from sound judgment. Okay? If I'm not being sober-minded, I'm allowing my mind to be captivated by something that will lead me away from sound judgment. Now, drugs and alcohol absolutely fit that bill. But there's a lot of other things that fit that bill. Premarital sex fits that bill. Right? Because once it goes physical, it's hard to have sound judgment. But there's even good things that can fit that bill, like political causes or recreation. Something that's captivated my mind. It's what I think about constantly. It's what I'm planning for. It's what I'm saving for. It's what I'm hoping for. It's what I'm desiring. And I'm thinking about it so much that it's captivated my mind and it's clouding my judgment. So I'm selling, I have a little rental house that my wife and I bought as our very first house and I'm selling it and I'm trying to turn it around and and purchase a different rental house, right? And I, so it's, the real estate market is a little crazy. I don't know anybody know this, right? So I've been like looking at it like crazy and every morning I'm checking stuff and trying to figure out and making an offer on this house and think about this house and crunching numbers. And I was studying this the other day and I kind of had this like check in my spirit, like, am I, am I, I might be being captivated by this. It's captivating me because I'm finding myself like scrolling through Zillow on the couch when my kids are like, daddy, come play with me. And I'm like, hold on, I gotta look at this. That's not, that's bad judgment. That's bad judgment because I've been captivated and it's leading me away from sound judgment. Timothy, James, be sober-minded. There's another verse that's really popular that we use this term sober-minded in and it's 1 Peter 5, 8. We know this verse where Peter says, be sober-minded because your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. And if you look at what the meaning of that verse is, it's really saying be aware or be vigilant. I like to say be constantly vigilant. Be constantly vigilant. Be sober-minded. And what's cool is if you combine those two, you say be constantly vigilant that nothing captivates your mind outside of God's word and God's work and God's kingdom. Right? So I have to be constantly checking myself. Is something captivating my mind that is not of God's kingdom, that is not of God's work, that is keeping me from making sound judgment? I need to be sober-minded. He says, as for you, Timothy, be sober-minded and then endure suffering. I love this one. Timothy, endure suffering. You don't get to choose whether or not you go through suffering. You don't get to avoid suffering. Isn't that the American motto, right? Like we don't say endure suffering. We say avoid suffering. We do. And I was listening to this 
fascinating sermon by Timothy Keller on this the other day. And he said, the reason we say that is because Western culture and Americans specifically, we have something that he calls the life control delusion. Okay, the life control delusion. And it's our deluded thinking that we're in control of our life. And he uses a great example. He said the very last line from the Back to the Future trilogy is, Marty, the future is whatever you want to make it, so make it a good one, right? Is the future whatever Marty wants to make it? No, Marty's not in control. We're not in control. But we have this idea that we are in control. It's the life control delusion. And the problem with the life control delusion is if I'm in control, there should be no suffering. So if I'm suffering, someone's screwed up and someone needs to pay. Did you see this on the news? I saw that they've already started inquiries into like the power grid in Texas. Like someone has to pay. The power grid went down. Something went wrong. Someone screwed up. No, it was zero degrees in Texas. That's what happened. It's a zero, okay? You don't control the weather. We don't plan for that. But we don't endure suffering in America. We avoid suffering. And then we play the blame game. Here's another perfect example. If you don't think you do this yourself, what is the very first thing you do? What's the very first thing I do when I find out when I'm, that I'm sick? I'm like, where did I get it? Who gave it to me? You gave it to me, Right? Or like we take our kids to church and then we bring home and they get sick and we're like, dang it, I knew I shouldn't have gone. That cold's going around. Like if we just did everything right, our kids wouldn't get sick at all. But doesn't science tell us that that's actually bad for our kids, right? They need these, they need to develop what God has put into their bodies. But we have this deluded idea that we're in control. And because we're in control, we just think suffering is wrong somehow. Timothy, James, Hedgewater, endure suffering. You're not in control. It's gonna happen. You don't control the weather. You don't control your spouse. You don't control your kids. Of course, you knew that. Um, We don't need to blame someone. We don't need to fix it even. We just need to endure it. That's what Paul did. That's what Paul did. Then he says this. Always be sober-minded, endure suffering. Number four, in the keep walking rightly section, do the work of an evangelist. Every commentary I read said something I found super encouraging, which was Paul is telling Timothy this, do the work of an evangelist because an evangelism, the evangelistic heart was not Timothy's natural tendency, okay? He's saying, Timothy, make sure you're doing the work of an evangelist because I know it doesn't come naturally to you, but you still need to be doing it. And I like that because it doesn't come naturally to me. Some people are really evangelistic, okay? I tend to be more informative. I like to talk, I like to explain, I like to break things down, but I'm not super evangelistic. But I've been challenged by this, like, hey, James, I, I cannot hide behind, well, it's not really my thing. Like, I like to to teach and exposit, and ex- I like to do that. So I'll leave the evangelistic things to like the Chad Hansons of the world who are so good at it. Paul says, no, sorry, James, you, you gotta be, do the work of an evangelist, right? You know, Steve, Mark, Dave, sorry, do the work of an evangelist. It's like, whether or not it's your calling, do the work of an evangelist. 
And the work of an evangelist is straightforward. An evangelist doesn't complicate things. They just simply tell the gospel. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. He'll change your life. That's what you need. Evangelism always starts with prayer. Lord, give me opportunities. Lord, help me to recognize those opportunities. Lord, show me what to say. That's how evangelism starts. Lord, give me opportunities. Lord, help me to recognize those opportunities. Lord, teach me what to say. And then it begins with, or it's best introduced with questions. Hey, does God love you? What do you think God's like? What do you think about heaven? Right, those are the questions that start evangelism. And God says, man, if you pray for opportunities, if you're willing to do the work of an evangelist, I will bring those to you and I will show you in that moment what to say. It's a call to each and every single one of us, whether or not it's our nature, whether or not we're good at it, whether or not we feel comfortable with it. Hey, that's Timothy. Timothy's just like you there. And Paul says, sorry, dude, do the work of an evangelist. And then finally, he says this, Timothy, fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry. I actually like how Paul puts this in Ephesians 4.1, where he says this, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And if you're in ministry for any length of time, and if you talk with people, you will get this question like, I just want to figure out what my calling is. I just want to figure out what my calling is. What's my calling? Your calling is whatever you've already been called to. I think people think it's like a mystical experience, like, oh, I'm going to find my calling, and then there'll be no suffering, and it'll just be super easy sailing, and I'll do it. No, you know what I've been called to do? I've been called to be a husband to my wife, Tara. I've been called to be a dad to my three kids, Veda, Sabine, and Cole. I've been called to run a family business. I've been called to be a good employer. I've also been called to be an elder at Edgewater. And I've been called to teach and share the word. And apparently I've been called to be an evangelist, which I'm still working on. What has God already put in front of you? That's your calling. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, past tense. It's right there in front of you. It's your marriage, it's your kids, it's your relationships, it's your neighbors. It's walk in a manner worthy of that. And if you feel a tug on your heart to get involved in ministry in one area or another area or another area, great. Get involved in ministry. That's all part of your calling. Because I'll have people sometimes like, I'll teach and then people will be like, oh man, you know, when are you going to start a church? I'm like, this is my church. Like, they're like, well, I think maybe, someone told me one time, I think you've missed your calling. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm doing my calling and I'm doing that calling and I'm doing that calling. I'm walking in a manner worthy, I pray right now, of the calling that God's put in front of me, which is my kids and my family and my business and being involved here at church. And when God puts something else, I pray that I'll be able to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. And when he takes something out, I'll, I'll be okay with that too. But we just walk in a manner that God has put in front of us every day. It's not a mystical experience to find your calling. It's walking worthy of what God has put in front of you as your work, as your job, as your family, as your relationships. So 
That's what he tells Timothy. He says, hey man, keep your eye on the bigger picture. Keep preaching the word. Keep yourself walking rightly, right? Like be sober-minded, be an evangelist, walk in a manner worthy of your calling, endure suffering. And then we get this final section, which I call just keep on keeping on, okay? Because Paul basically says here, listen, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul's gonna switch from talking to Timothy and talk about himself here for a minute. And when I look at Paul's life and why Paul was successful, aside from being brilliant, like the thing about Paul was he just had grit, didn't he? Like Paul just kept on keeping on. That is the mark of Paul's life. He just didn't quit. It wasn't always the most successful thing. It wasn't always pretty. He just kept on keeping on, right? Look what he says. Paul says this, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Man, I wanna say that. I wanna sit on my deathbed and look back at my life and be like, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. Keep on keeping on, just like Paul. You know, and I touched on this a little bit on Sunday, but when I read this and Paul says he fought the good fight, I just think about Paul because like, Paul didn't win many fights, did he? Like every time I hear about Paul getting in a fight, he got beat up. Like his boxing record's like 0 and 10. I mean, he always lost, didn't he? So what does he mean when he says he kept fighting the good fight? He means he got back up again. They stoned him. They hit him with large rocks until he stopped moving because he was passed out and then they threw more rocks at him. And then he got up and went and preached the gospel. Right? Like, that's what he means by the good fight. Keep fighting the good fight, even if you're getting beat up. Parents, keep fighting the good fight. Even if you're getting beat up, even if you feel like you're losing every battle with your high schooler or your middle schooler, keep fighting the good fight. Dads, keep fighting for your wives. Keep fighting for your kids. Wives, fight for your husbands. Spouses, fight for your marriages. Grandparents, fight for your grandkids. Edgewater, fight for Grant's past. Like, keep fighting. Even when we lose, even when it's bloody, even when we get beat up, what does Paul say? Man, I just, I kept fighting. I just kept fighting. That's so encouraging because sometimes I feel like if I have a defeat, that means I was not doing it right or I was doing something, I, I should be doing something different. I love Paul, like, if that was Paul, he probably would have only had half of a one missionary journey, right? He'd have gone to the first town and been like, whoa, okay, this is not working. I gotta come up with another plan. Just kept fighting, just kept fighting. And he says, I finished the race. You really can't read a biblical reference to race and not think of Hebrews, right? You just can't. Where he says, hey, I laid aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and I ran with endurance the race set before. I finished the race. I laid aside that sin. I set aside those weights. And I ran with endurance. Man, I want to do that like Paul. And he says, I kept the faith. I have not changed the gospel. I haven't watered it down. I haven't given in to false teachers. 
I haven't given in to legalists. I haven't given in to pressure from Rome to declare that Caesar is God along with Jesus. I just kept the faith. I kept the gospel simple and I preached it. And when they knocked me down, I got back up and I went to a new town and I preached it again. How in the world did Paul do that? Right? Like how in the world did Paul do that? It's because Paul has this crazy perspective on life. Look at verse six. Here's what Paul says. I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. The metaphor of a drink offering is brilliant here because it's gonna draw in both Jews who would think of a wine offering that was offered with a burnt sacrifice where you would bring an offering of wine to the Lord and you would pour the whole thing out. And it's also going to bring in Greeks and Romans who had a tradition where they would pour a small cup of wine out at the end of a meal to their gods. Paul's saying, listen, I am an offering. My life is an offering and I am being completely poured out and it's almost over. My life is an offering. How do you keep getting up when you get beat down? How do you throw off every weight and run the race? How do you keep the faith? You view your life as an offering. My life is an offering and I'm being completely poured out. And then I absolutely love this. He says, and the time of my departure has come. Like he's all packed up and ready for a trip. Hey, I'm ready to go, man. Like when you go to the airport and you check the departure boards, like I kind of have this visual, like I visualize, if I could draw it, I would draw like a comic strip. Like on one hand, I'd have Paul like with all the departures and it'd be like departure, noon. And he'd be standing there. And on the other side would be Jesus in heaven. It'd be like arrivals, noon, Paul. And everybody would be behind him like, yay, Paul and the angels. And there's a feast set out because he's like, dude, I'm just taking a little trip. And the moment of my departure is also the moment of my arrival. That's his perspective on life. That's how he does this. How do we have that perspective? Well, we remember that God's present, right? We remember that God is present and that God's coming back and he's gonna judge. And we evaluate everything by that and we go, okay, you know what? Maybe it would be a better choice to have my life be an offering, an offering to Jesus instead of an offering to to this guy. Because sometimes my life is an offering to this guy. Off too often. Paul says, I'm a drink offering, man. I'm being poured out. And then he says this, henceforth, verse eight, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness with the, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I'm gonna get rewarded, Paul says. All the way back, referencing what he talked about in verse one. Hey, I'm gonna get rewarded. I'm gonna get a crown. And a crown is so cool because a crown is both wealth and authority. You see that? A crown of gold is both valuable intrinsically, but it's also valuable because it's authority. And the Bible teaches us that when we're rewarded in heaven, we're getting both. We're getting mansions and and gold and crowns, but we're also getting authority. I think that's just a cool idea. It's such a cool thing that we'll get to rule and reign with Jesus in heaven. I want that crown. Do you want that crown? I want that crown. And he tells us right here how to get it. And it's super confusing. So 
It is. I, just, I came home the other day, and my, I talked to my wife, and I'm like, I do not get what he's saying here, right? He says, and to all who have loved his appearing. Like not if you fight the good race like me, or if you finish the race like me, or if you keep the faith like me, you'll get the crown. But it's also for all who have loved his appearing. And I'm like, what in the, I don't. But I think the key is in the next verse. So read the next verse with me. It says, actually the next two verses. It says, do your best to come to me soon for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. We have a juxtaposition here now. We have all those who've loved his appearing and we have Demas who loved this present world. Now, when we see Demas, Demas was a fellow laborer, a fellow worker with Paul and that's how he's introduced first. Paul says in one of his previous epistles, hey, Demas is my fellow laborer. And then a few epistles later, he's like, hey, Demas is here. And then in this one, he says, Demas, he loved the world and he abandoned me. We're not supposed to take this to mean that Demas left the faith, just that he stopped being involved in ministry. He stopped serving. He stopped viewing his life as an offering. And so he chose to pursue things of this world as opposed to crowns of righteousness. I think Demas is in heaven. I just think he's, well, he's not bummed out because heaven doesn't work that way, but you know what I mean, right? He's missing out on things he could have had because you get to either be in love with his appearing someday or you can be in love with this present world. And I don't think we can do both. I don't think we can do both. And I wanna be like Paul and not like Demas. So then Paul continues on with his just kind of family business. He says, Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. It's a nice little rhyme there. I could write a kid's book over that. Um, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful for me in ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. So apparently Paul left Troas in a hurry because he left behind his cloak and his books and his parchments. Most scholars believe this is because Paul was arrested in Troas or just outside of Troas. And in the Roman imperial system, your arresting guard got to keep all your possessions. So Paul's like, they're not getting my cloak. They're not getting my parchment. They're not getting my books. I'm leaving them with Carpus. So, hey, Timothy, could you pick those up on your way? And then he says this, Verse 16, at my first defense, oh no, sorry, I skipped verse 14. 14 is important. Verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Alexander the coppersmith is probably the same Alexander from Acts chapter 19. So in Acts chapter 19, there was a guy um, named Demetrius, who was a silversmith. And he was the head of the silversmith guild, or we would think of it as like a union. And that union of metal workers was getting a little fed up with Paul because Paul kept telling people that they didn't need idols. And idols were a big business for metal workers. And so they put together this big riot and they're pushing Paul into the Colosseum, I believe, and they're yelling, great is Ephesus and, and this guy Alexander is pushed forward to give a testimony for Paul 
because it is believed that he was both a member of the guild and a member of the church. So he's pushed forward to give a testimony for Paul and then the crowd finds out that he's a Jew and yells so loud he doesn't get to give his testimony. So it appears that at one point in time, this Alexander guy was a member of the church. But then most likely what happened is he realized he was gonna lose his friends and he was gonna lose his occupation. And so he walked away. And not only did he walk away, but he got disgruntled and he started adamantly opposing Paul. Alexander the coppersmith. But see what Paul tells Timothy. He says, you beware, God repays. You beware, God repays. We are called to love everyone. Agape, unconditional love. But there are some people we're also called to be aware of. I believe that. There's wolves in the New Testament in churches. There's people who pray on Christmas. There's people to be aware of. We beware, let God repay. Sometimes I wanna do both. I wanna be like, I'll repay, you can beware, right? That's not what it says. You beware, God repay. And then in verse 16, he says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Apparently, Paul has gone through one trial, and at his trial, no one showed up in his defense. Everybody deserted him. And Paul says here, man, don't hold it against them. I love that about Paul. Paul is so easy to for, quick to forgive. He is so gracious. No, wait, wait a minute, you say. What about the coppersmith? Dude, he just threw the coppersmith underneath the bus. No, Paul threw the coppersmith underneath the bus because he opposed the gospel. Okay, if you oppose the gospel, I'm opposed to you. But if you just oppose me, you know what? It may not be held against you. That's what Paul's saying here. Hey, beware of, be opposed to, be wary of people who are opposed to the gospel. But if they just have a problem with you personally or they let you down or they defeat you, just forgive them. Just forgive them and move on. It's not worth it. It's just not worth it. And then he goes on to say this, it's so great. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Do you know what Paul just said there? He said, at my trial, where I was on trial for preaching the gospel, I preached the gospel. <laughs> They're like, are you the one who's saying that Jesus came back from the dead? Yes, I am. And also, he's here to save your sins. And he died for you individually. And he wants to have a relationship with you. That's what Paul did at his trial. I love that. It's so great. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesephorus and Erastus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. Thank you, I practiced. Um, <laughs> the Lord be with you, your spirit, grace with you. There's one final thought here that I have as I'm closing. Because Paul is such a stud, isn't he? He's, he's just, I, 
if you could try to be like someone other than Jesus, I look at Paul and I'm like, man, you just did it, dude. You just kept on keeping on. But you know what Paul says in this passage? He says, dude, everyone left me. Can you hurry up and get here soon? It's winter and I'm cold. And I love that Paul wasn't afraid to ask for help. Paul, who wrote the New Testament, who got up after he was stoned and walked into churches, who preached the gospel at his trial for preaching the gospel, was like, you know what? I'm kind of lonely right now. Could you come over and hang out with me? I'm cold. Could you bring my cloak? I don't know if it's our Western individualism, independence, but we're not good at that, are we? All too often when I've had a need, I've walked around hoping someone would notice and offer. Right? Paul just asked, hey, I got needs. Will you pray for me? Will you help me out? Will you come visit me, please? I'm lonely. I love that. I absolutely love that. I wanna be more like that. More like Paul in that way. So that's what Paul says in his final words. He says, hey man, keep... Keep preaching the gospel. Keep your eye on the bigger picture. Keep walking rightly, right? And when you need help, ask for it. When you need help, ask for it. But don't forget that God is present. God is always present. He's returning soon. And our lives can be an offering unto him because the day of our departure is right around the corner, right? Amen. Father, I thank you for this passage. Thank you for the opportunity to dive into your word and look through it, for the challenges it gives me, for the way it blesses me. May we be like Paul. Lord, give me a spirit that will ask for help when I'm in need, that will see needs and go after other people. Help me to just keep on keeping on, pursuing you, offering my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen.